Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, the streets are getting punchy and Kitty and Rain are getting pretty in Excalibur number 108, The Old Ways, co-starring Spiral and the Dragons of the Crimson Dawn, and also Shamrock is there. Excalibur number 108 was <laughs> published in April 1997, and the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Salvador LaRocca on pencils, Scott Koblish on inks, Kevin Tinsley in graphic color works on colors, Richard Starkings in Comicraft on letters and Matt Idealson and Paul Tatrone on editing. Well, what if he doesn't like it? Oh, at this point, what have you got to lose? Oh, I don't know. Hey, come on, everybody, we're doing a makeover. And here we are for more Excala chat, starring your intrepid Excala crew. Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. You know me as the person who studies sexy and gendery stuff in superhero comics, so it shouldn't surprise you that I have read all the most recent appearances of one Molly Fitzgerald, aka Shamrock, in the pages of Girl Comics and Fearless Defenders. I am also co-project lead of Sequential Scholars, where Andrew and I are currently talking about, I wrote something in our outline because it's up to me to decide, and I haven't decided yet. I'm on it. I'm going to decide. And of course, I remain now and forever Kurt Vogner's unofficial PR manager, knowing me as you do from my time in this very unpaid role. I'm sure you're expecting me to want to talk about the Curtain Colossus tank top Ropal sword fight that opens this issue, and you're right, I do want to talk about that. But first, I need to introduce the rest of our crew. Mav, are you feeling pretty this week? I mean, sure. I mean, I, I recently did change my hair. So like, I am I feel like I'm on brand for um, this Heck particular yeah. issue. Um, n- nothing else about it matters. I, for, for sequential scholars, might I suggest that you just spend like a week talking about, you know, nice recipes for pound cake. Why? Because it has as much to do with comics as this issue does. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> Is that all oh, you yeah, got I'm... for us this week, Matt? Oh, or are I mean, you... I guess. <laughs> I guess. I, 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 yeah, I, I mean, like, like, okay, it's just, hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. I, I'm a professor of digital narrative interactive design at University of Pittsburgh. I study comics and, and stuff, uh, you know, gender, sexuality, class, race, things like that. Again, none of that's in this book. So, like, I, I don't know that I have anything to bring to this conversation. that's like relevant to my actual background this is in all technical senses a comic (laughs) that's right it does qualify i mean i think many of those things if we try can be seen to be present in this comic but we are gonna have to try (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not taking the week off, you know, like, like we'll, we'll do it, but it's just like I feel like this is the book that went through the motions, very much so, uh, yeah. and like, you know, how, how excited am I gonna be for this, you know? <laughs> oh, you're gonna get excited. We're gonna get into it, Andrew. Oh, there are things that I want to, that I do want to talk about. I do have some notes. I just don't know that they're what people are gonna um, be expecting. Well, I'm you looking might. forward to that. I'm looking forward. I'm expecting the unexpected, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, Andrew. Are you happy with your styles this week? I don't actually have one of those. I'm actually <laughs> oh still God. mad at last episode's reveal of Mav's further coolness for being in movies. Mm. Um, every episode, Anna's like, I was in a band. Mav, I was in movies. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm Dr. Andrew DeBed. And Andrew's like, I fought girl. a bear last week. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. Uh, no, no, it's fine. I'm co-lead of Sequential Scholars. I'm a bland, basic Northern Canadian man of nondescript origins. I'm ready to go. <laughs> oh my god! I wow. can't handle the self-deprecation. He was my in goodness. a Kevin Smith movie. Come on. <laughs> yes, Mav has been sending us uh, stills from films in which he's uh, done some background work, which I need to tweet out because I'm sure people will enjoy yes. this. Um, we have the absolute honor of being joined this week by an award-winning comic scholar who is absolutely too good for this comic, but we're going to make her talk about it anyway. Bod <laughs> is overjoyed to welcome Dr. Susan Kirtley. Hello, Susan. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a lot of fun to be here. <laughs> I hope so. Um, we'll tell the listeners a little bit more about you and then we'll get into some of your research a little bit more. So Dr. Susan Kirtley is a professor of English and the director of comic studies at Portland State University. Her research interests include visual rhetoric and graphic narratives, and she has published pieces on comics for the popular press and academic journals. She is the author of the Eisner winning book, Linda Berry, Girlhood Through the Looking Glass, and co-editor of With Great Power Comes Great Pedagogy, Teaching, Learning, and Comics. Her book, Typical Girls, The Rhetoric of Womanhood, comic strips won the 2022 Charles Hatfield Prize for the best book from the Comic Study Society. She is also currently an associate editor of Inks, the Journal of the CSS. Now, Susan, I've had the pleasure of interacting with you a little bit in some scholarly contexts over the years, but I would love to know more about your personal comics origin story, which is not something we talked about. And we love to do that with new guests. So yeah, tell me about it a little bit. Like when did you first come into contact with comics? Absolutely. I, I apologize if, if you've heard this story before, but I have a distinct moment. I remember first encountering comics, well, in a really, shall we say, passionate way. Uh, I was in elementary school and I was told by some kids on the playground that girls don't read comics. Mm -hmm. And I have a personality where if I'm told not to do something, I will do it with a passion, <laughs> with gusto, shall we say. So when I was told that girls sh should not or could not or whatever, they didn't read comics, I was determined to read all of the comics all of the time. Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, I went to the spinner racks back when they had the spinner racks at the grocery store. And I would read all of the comics I could find while my mom was grocery shopping and became obsessed. And I, and I thought, you know, why, why aren't we all reading comics? Because it was like, you know, it was this wonderful soap opera with lots of punching and 
angst and fighting in fabulous fashion. And I was like, why are we all reading comics all the time? And I became obsessed. <laughs> and like, I, I really actually started my first sort of love from those spinner racks was the X-Men comics. So I read a lot of um, Marvel, a lot of the X titles. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, I was like, oh, I discovered, you know, comic shops. And I started reading Sandman and I started reading Grendel and Concrete and these other comics. And then I discovered Underground Comics and Linda Berry. And I, I, and I really do read all of the comics all that I can find. And so it's been, you know, a, a great, a great passion of mine for uh, a very long time since that fateful day on the playground. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. Best origin story. Uh, I, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about your academic practice, but let's talk about X-Men first, because I wasn't sure whether you were an X-Men head or not, but right before we started recording, you were talking about Dark Phoenix Saga a little bit. So let's get into that a little bit. Like, tell me a little bit about your affection for this franchise you know what drew it to you all those years later or continues to interest you about it today well I picked up the x-men comics and for me I had this great affection for the characters and I have spoken about I know you know you have your great loves I really adored rogue um I felt like we were just we were kindred spirits because we were you know like sort of grumpy and we felt like we sucked the life out of everyone around us <laughs> and like um, I felt this really unique kinship we were tortured you know keep in mind I was tween you know at this time I was like mm-hmm. I am tortured I have no friends I sucked the energy out of everyone around me oh. you know like you know you know I was at that stage um and uh but I felt this kinship with Rogue, but also with the whole team in their flaws and their angst and and watching them go through, you know, falling in love and fighting and falling out of love and trying on a succession of outfits, some flattering, some not. And just sort of, um, you know, really, I, I enjoyed the character development and seeing those interactions. And really, I mean, it, there, you know, there's that soap opera element that I really, really connected to. And, and the world is so big. As you know, obviously, you know, and I I had fun and we'll get into this comic in a moment, but I did read Excalibur, but I was at a stage where I couldn't afford all of the Marvel comics. So I would stand either in the grocery store or the comic shop and try and read as many Marvel comics as I could before they kicked me out. And so, <laughs> you know, like there was a whole world and I, and I read some t- titles I would save my money for and really, you know, read all of, all of them and others I would just sort of have to try and read surreptitiously, you know, in the shop. Yeah. Um, and Excalibur was one of those that I read sporadically. So coming back to it was, I, I felt this great sense of nostalgia, you know, saying, oh, look, there's, you know, there's Kitty, there's, you know. Um, so that was uh, really enjoyable for me to come back and sort of, it felt like old friends to, to read Aww. this comic. Oh, that's good. That's some positive energy that we're bringing to this yeah. one. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the scholarly practice aspect a little bit then. Like, has the study of comics always been part of your scholarly practice? Or if not, how did you kind of come to it? Well, sadly, no. I they, they Comics have not always been a part of my scholarly practice. I, I didn't really realize they could be for a very, very yeah. long time. It was something that I did separately. You know, this was this thing that I did on my own time with my own money is reading comics. And I studied, uh, you know, the classics. I was an English major. I, my master's was in 
and medieval women writers. Uh, and then I studied rhetoric, particularly visual rhetoric in my PhD program. So I was really sort of a more classically trained, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't until I was in my PhD program that I was teaching an essay class and I brought in Linda Berry, 100 Demons, which I thought were these sort of visual essays and really delightful, a different way of bringing in a different kind of text into an essay writing class. So I was teaching these selections from 100 Demons by Linda Berry in my essay writing class. And it was just magical because the students responded. We were, you know, we're creating new narratives. We're creating our own comics. And I realized, oh, this is the, these two interests, you know, they, they aren't separate. They really, really aren't. And so being an obsessive teacher, I also was like, oh, I need to read all about Linda Berry and everything she's ever done and everything I could find sort of scholarly work on her. And they're just at the time, there's much more now, but at the time there wasn't much available. And I thought, I remember I went to a conference and I presented about Linda Berry and this delightful scholar, Tom Inge, who has since yes. passed away, approached me mm -hmm. and said, you should write a book about Linda Berry. And I thought, oh, I said, no, 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 I can't. I, I'm a, you know, I'm a rhetorician. This is not what I do. And I remembered so distinctly Tom saying to me, uh, well, just tell me about the comics you like. And I went on this sort of villain worthy monologue. I was like, wow, just like <laughs> I just did. I started with the X-Men and then I discovered Sam and then I read this and then, I, and, and Tom Inch said, you'll be all right. You know, he said, you can do this because you love it. I, and that was sort of the, the beginning of that journey of really taking a deep dive into comics as an academic scholarly pursuit because I really do love them. And I discovered that my training in visual rhetoric, obviously it wasn't separate, you know, yeah, thinking about multimodal literacy, about visual rhetoric, about all of these things, it wasn't separate at all. Uh, and so that's, and, and since then I have, you know, continued uh, studying comics, teaching comics, and realizing, oh yeah, it's all it all works together really, really well, at least for me. And I feel very lucky to be able to do what I do. Oh, that's such a beautiful story about Tom, someone I know that had a big influence on a lot of people. I was not fortunate enough to meet mm -hmm. him, but thanks for sharing I, that. I, I have I obviously I, won't, I don't know if it's obvious since people I don't know what people know about my background, but I, I attend the conference several times. I've met Tom many times. He was awesome. And now that you're telling that story, this is going to be really fun because if I if I'm guessing correctly, you would have had this encounter with Tom at PCA. I want to say 2000 and I, I cannot remember the exact year. I believe it was PCA, but I can't remember the exact year. I think I saw your talk. You presented on on, <laughs> some, on Linda Berry. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, but Tom Tom Angel was great. Eek. <laughs> Eek. Yeah, very much in the formative stages. But yes, I, I knew who Linda Berry was. I didn't know about syllabus. So I believe seeing you talk about it was the first time I saw that book. <laughs> it's a very small world. Aw, small world. I love all these connections. Let me just ask you a little bit more about about your comics work. And I'm, I'm going to get you to talk about your typicals, typical girls book in just a little bit. But I mean, what particularly inspires you to sort of integrate comics into into some of the things that you were already doing? I mean, you just said so wonderfully about how it's not so different from what you were doing but like yeah tell us a little bit more about that you know like what do you think that the study of comics can add to some of the the existing discourses that you were teaching and studying you know like what excites you about this medium and, and some of the genres therein I think it's I think there's a quote from Samuel Delaney he says something like I think and I apologize for paraphrasing but he says something like 
I think you can do things in comics that you can do in no other form. And I, yeah. I feel like comics are really a special way of telling stories. And I'm very interested in how we tell our stories. Uh, and of course, I still read text-based books, but, you know, and I listen to podcasts and all of this, but I think there's something very special about this form of storytelling that where you have the text and the image. And as a teacher, it's really wonderful for me to be able to encourage the students to both think and create in these different modes. And, you know, I think we are an increasingly visual world. Our students, when I teach rhetoric and when I teach writing, our students will be composing for screens often where they will be composing right. with text and image. And I think it's important for me as an instructor to encourage students to think about how do they consume, you know, these these image-based narratives and also how do they create so they can be really thoughtful about it. Uh, and so it's important for me as an instructor and also as, a, I'm also a person who has always been fascinated by this pairing of text and image. As I said, I studied medieval women writers and, you know, I was very interested in, uh, uh, you know, those illuminated manuscripts that, you know, and then I worked at television and I was working on documentaries for um, public broadcasting. And I was thinking about how do we pair the script with the film? Uh, and then I was studying visual rhetoric and writing and technology. And so uh, it was interesting to me when I was trying to, when I was on the job market, I was trying to, I was thinking, I'm such a magpie. I'm all over the place, <laughs> you know, medieval women writers, writing technology, visual stuff, comics. But I really think there's this thread of, you know, storytelling and narrative with these different modes. That's really, I think, powerful as a, as a consumer, as a creator theater as a teacher. Um, I think they're very powerful. And I think, you know, comics are a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think your varied background speaks to <laughs> the depth of your scholarship so well. I love hearing you talk about it because, you know, we're all so much of the time figuring out how to study comics and someone with the varied background that you have. I mean, you're ideally positioned to bring that something new to it that it needs. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. Okay, let's get into our conversation about this comic and I'll come right back to you for your, for your first impressions after we do an issue summary, Susan. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely wouldn't steal the body of your girlfriend and break up with you via your friend and never expect explain why any of this happened until an ancillary comic years later just to prove how thoughtful we are that of all of us <laughs> <laughs> promising of me at any rate um just to prove how thoughtful we are here's a handy plot summary excalibur number 108 opens in the midst of a sweaty spandex sword fight between kurt and colossus kurt cheats then so does piotr and supposedly this is just like the good old days when kurt leaves amanda sefton appears and says it's not like the good old days because she's leaving without saying goodbye editor's note amanda leaving without saying goodbye actually is exactly totally like the good like old the good days <laughs> all she does very much her thing but but no matter uh amanda says she's not herself anymore hint hint but can't explain she asks piotr to give kurt a kiss on her behalf elsewhere Pete Wisnum receives a strange email before getting attacked with midair makeouts by Kitty. Kitty subsequently encourages Pete to get a spandex costume like the rest of them. Pete, unsurprisingly, is having none of it. Meanwhile, back in London, Brian is fighting for his life and maybe Megan's against the combined might of the dragons of the Crimson Dawn. Because we all know villains are fond of, fond of explicating their plans while beating our heroes to a pulp, we learn during the battle that the dragons believe they need Brian's magic to usher in a mythical renaissance. 
response. From there, we cut back to Muir Island, where Rain expresses her concern about Moira McTaggart's obsession with finding a cure for the legacy virus and what this obsession might be doing to her guardian's health. Douglock promises to keep an eye on Moira as Rain and Kitty embark on a trip to the mainland in search of some hot new looks, courtesy of the most sought-after hairdresser in all of Europe, Molly Fitzgerald, aka Shamrock. Though judging by the cast she's rocking, Molly is apparently down on her luck. Back in London, Megan finally wakes up after being knocked unconscious. She rescues Brian before Spiral, upholding her end of her bargain with the dragons, teleports him away. Spiral then approaches Megan, claiming she's not working with the dragons. She offers to help Megan get Brian back and seems eager when Megan suggests recruiting the rest of Excalibur to join them. All right, now Susan, I'm sure there's going to be stuff in this comic that is baffling. We're dropping you into issue number two of an (laughs) ongoing story arc in issue 108 of Excalibur. Not that the previous 106 odd issues are particularly relevant to this one, but trust us on that. Calling the Crimson Dawn story an arc is (laughs) like generous. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Real generous. But still, still, hit me with your first impression, Susan. Like anything that particularly baffled you or that you're particularly eager to discuss about this issue? Well, I'm going to be positive because you've invited me here and I want to be a good guest. So I'm going to start off with things that I enjoy. As I mentioned, it did. I did have a nostalgic sort of, oh, you know, feeling of, of delight, remembering, oh yeah, I forgot about. And so it was fun for me to sort of become reacquainted with these characters. So that was positive. I thought that from a technical standpoint, there were some cool focalizing shots and point of view kind of Yep. You know, looking down, there's a point where Kitty Pride is looking down and there's some interesting things with the, the point of view and with the page and panel breakdowns. But with that said, I mean, there were some very abrupt shifts, both tonally and narratively, and that was, you know, <laughs> challenging. But again, focusing on my first positive impressions, I, and we, you guys might not agree, but I kind of enjoyed these smaller domestic moments like, hey, let's get our hair done. Like, yeah, we don't really get that much of that in in superhero comics and i rather enjoyed this idea of let's do something not involving violence let's let's go <laughs> you know let's go talk about politics a little bit and you know get our hair washed and done so i i have to say i i rather enjoyed that so those are sort of i i'm Focusing on the positive, and now you guys can tear it up, but I wanted to be a good guest and bring, like, some good energy. No, I definitely want to talk about the Kitty and Rain getting their hair done bit a little bit more. I mean, one of our scholarly interactions in the past was uh, a panel about female friendships in superhero comics, Mm -hmm. which uh, is one of the reasons I thought about you for this particular issue, so we're definitely going to get back to that. Uh, But yeah, let me pick up some first impressions from the guys first. Andrew, hit me with it. How are you feeling? So... Mav argued that this is technically a comic book. I would argue that this might be the most homogenized Excalibur comic we've studied yet. This thing is mm. generic as hell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and that that bothers me. So ha- having Susan here is a wonderful treat to be able to talk about <laughs> um, some of the sort of subtextual elements. What I would say I enjoyed personally is um, we talked last ep about um, Salvador Laraca's art and, and we were very sort of different pages on that, different different perspectives. So again, just speaking subjectively, Um, I was really pleased to see him growing as an artist, just going from last issue to this one, particularly in the back half of the story, where I thought he was incorporating his space and um, developing his draftsmanship significantly more. And you can kind of, again, get that weird thrill of seeing someone you know is going to become a really talented artist, starting to develop their craft and starting to develop, I would say in particular, confidence 
um, in his, again, draftsmanship specifically, uh, his pages mm-hmm. here in the back half are much better uh, than they were in the previous issue, at least to me. There are backgrounds. Backgrounds are great. <laughs> yeah, there, Everyone there, should there have any, Yeah, there weren't any last <laughs> issue. <laughs> yeah, I think the storytelling is slightly more, I want to say, readable than it was in the last issue. Although we mm-hmm. talked about some of the experimentalism mm-hmm. there and how it sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. But some of the choices yeah. make a little bit more sense to me in this issue than they did in the last one. Mav, what energy are you bringing today? Well, I kind of already know the answer to that question, but um, I, expand if you would like. I read this. This book is cover dated April 1997. That means I first read this book more than 26 years ago. I most recently read this book about an hour ago. In that time, in the intervening 26 years, I've still not learned the name of even one member of the Crimson Dawn. Um, yeah, yeah. It, does, it does not matter. <laughs> a couple episodes ago, I think it was a couple episodes ago, I think because I think Adam said it, which was this is an era of disposable villain teams where, you know, you have the MLF and you have the acolytes. The acolytes. We had the acolytes recently. Yeah. And, and all these other teams the upstarts. that are upstarts and they're all functionally identical and there's a different crew every time they show up and don't memorize them because it doesn't matter their powers don't matter their motivations don't matter they're just evil they're just bodies to be thrown in a fight and they're sort of in the way of you are correct Susan. this is a very lovely hairdressing episode which could have been the entire book and i would have been much happier my favorite parts of the book are that conversation between rain and and kitty and then the conversation which is abruptly ended between peter and and um and kurt and then there's some other stuff that happens but none of it is meaningful i i think that there's potential that is just utterly crushed by the trying Mm. to be a 90s comic yeah (laughs) like like it's going out of its way to be a 90s comic in a way that i just don't care for like do the interesting thing the interesting thing was working yeah i mean i think for me it's just i mean i've been trying with some of these ben rob issues like i really have been trying to focus on the positive because i think if we just got into sort of griping about characterization the pod would be very boring Sure, But I mean, what Andrew said about it being a very generic issue really rings true to me in terms of there's some stuff going on here that would theoretically be interesting to me. Again, I love the idea of Kitty and Rain, you know, having a girl's day and doing their thing. And yet they're both written with so little individual character here that that's not grabbing me the way it would have. I mean, is this Kitty and Rain or is this any two women in any comic that exists there's just nothing particular about them here they don't feel like identical identifiable versions of themselves it's not that they seem ludicrously out of character they just seem uncharacterized to me and that's sort of my issue with some of this era of comics but anyway i do want to talk about that scene a little bit more and uh the significance of it despite some of our dissatisfaction with it but i want to do that in a little bit of a stealthy way that lets susan talk a little bit more about about her research on women in comics and uh, women creators of comics as well. So again, I said I was going to do this a little bit stealthy because I want you to talk about your book, Typical Girls, a little bit, Susan. So let's start with some broad questions related to that book topic. Uh, I'm going to do the teacherly interview question Uh here (laughs) of, so why have women, readers, and creators, and even characters been sidelined in existing histories of comics?
comics and why is it important to contest or at least complicate some of those histories? Because even your own origin story is kind of speaking to that a little bit, but I'd love to hear you talk about it a little bit more because much of your work sort of addresses some of those themes and like, yeah, take that question in whatever direction you would like. Please explain all sexism in 60 seconds yep, or less. Yep, Go. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> tall order, tall order. You don't have to do that, Susan, but... Um... It's funny, though, because people will often say to me, they'll say something like, oh, you study comics? Aren't they sexist? And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. yes, isn't the world? I mean, like, what, you know, like, yes, I also study you know, the classics, but people don't say, aren't they sexist? You know, I mean, yeah. and they so yes. are, <laughs> yes. and they definitely are. Yeah. They very much are. <laughs> they very much are. But it is funny that people say like, Oh, really? I also, you know, I think, you know, you pointed to my origin story, obviously studying, you know, feminism and sexism and gender studies has been an important part of my history. And that obviously my personal history, it obviously extends into my academic world as well in that, you know, you know, growing up, I was told girls don't do these things. They don't do this. They don't do that. You know, and it it has been a recurring theme when I studied medieval women writers, I would I would say, yes, I'm studying this in my master's medieval women writers. And people would say, oh, there were medieval women mm-hmm. writers, I would say, yes, in fact, there were. But as you point out, they're often overlooked or not studied. Um, and it's a, it, I have found a similar theme, you know, in terms of comics, people say, oh, there are comics, female, you know, comics creators and characters and things. And yes, in fact, they do exist. And uh, it's important to talk about, about them and the history and so forth. And there are other m- amazing scholars doing this work, like you guys, like, you know, Trina Robbins and so forth. But I think it's it's, it's important to acknowledge these somewhat hidden histories. You know, I, I think there's, a, you know, obviously, like you said, there are many, you know, sexism, misogyny. These are these are reasons why. I think there are other reasons in, as, as you mentioned, I, I wrote a book, Typical Girls, and it focused on comic strips. And I, I found that there were a number of reasons why comic strips created by women weren't studied as much. And I was particularly focusing on the era of uh, the women's liberation movement around, you know, 1970 to 1990, 2000-ish. You know, they weren't being studied. I think part of it is access um, because Mm -hmm. it's really hard to get access to these comics. And, and, a lot of them are, you know, marginalized within the papers. There's how many, you know, there's like two or three comic strips created by women and the other, whatever, 30 or 40 comic strips in the newspaper are by men. So they're often marginalized. They're overlooked. They're inaccessible. And when they are anthologized, and I've written about Kathy in various forms before by Kathy Geiswhite, when they were anthologized, they would focus on the most commercial um, aspects of the comic strip in order to sell it to audiences. And so, for example, Kathy by Kathy Geiswhite gets a really bad rap because it's like, oh, she's always talking about chocolate and shoes and dieting. But when I did this deep dive, and that deep dive (laughs) was me reading through pages and pages of newspapers to see the comics that weren't anthologized, I found Kathy talking about a sexual harassment. She was harassed, sexually harassed by, sexually assaulted by her boss. It's her talking about the Family Medical Leave Act. It's her talking about, you know, the wage gap and these really interesting issues, but it just isn't it wasn't being talked about because it wasn't accessible. It wasn't anthologized. And so there's, I think there's a a real history that has been sort of uh, 
overlooked for a number of reasons. I also think about Linda Berry, Ernie Pook's comic. A lot of people would say, oh, well, her comic, oh, this hurts me to even say it, but people would critique it saying that Linda Berry can't draw because her her female characters were not stereotypically attractive. And they're like, <laughs> oh, well, they aren't cute in this very, you know, Betty and Veronica kind of way. And so we won't talk about this comic, but you know, Linda Berry obviously is very intentional and there's a reason why the characters are drawn in the way that they're drawn, but it's like, oh, well, they're not, you know, mainstream. They're not attractive in that particular way. So they're overlooked. And so I think, you know, by reading these stories, I think we get a better picture of our history, obviously of these comics that influenced a generation, you know, when you were reading them, I was reading them in the newspaper. That was a really important part of my childhood. In addition to sort of standing around the, the, the racks at the grocery store, I was also reading the newspaper every morning. And that was my education on, on relationships and on gender. And so, and, and so I think it's really important to think about the ways that these comic strips reflect our culture, but also help shape it. So that's a long-winded answer. No, that's a wonderful answer. I'd be happy for you to talk about it for like another hour. I have such a strong memory of when I was first getting into comic studies in terms of when I was first starting to read books about comics and just being so struck by how absent women were from those histories with, again, you mentioned Trina Robbins already with the notable mm-hmm. exception of, of her histories of, of women in comics, both characters and creators. And when I went to look at the actual comics and like read things like the original Ms. Marvel series where like <laughs> Carol Danvers is very much Gloria Steinem and then you go back to the original first like, <laughs> Peter Wonder Woman comics and you're like, these were aimed at girls you know like for all of their complications and problems and things which we could discuss at length like these were stories about female empowerment that inspired you know people like Steinem who you know wrote the introduction of the first collected edition of those comics and so much of that history was just missing from so many of those first books in comic studies and yeah it's really striking when there's a book like yours that goes back and retraces some of those histories and highlights everything that's been missing because because it's so obvious that those things have been missing and yet I really can't emphasize enough for you know some of our listeners who might not be kind of familiar that really so many of these creators and even characters and comic strips just weren't discussed in comic studies for such a long time and uh, the other thing I wanted to do is put in a plug for a friend of the pod Margaret Galvan she's got a book coming out this fall called Invisible Art which is about a similar period to typical girls highlighting some of those marginalized creators and texts and also talking about those issues of access that Susan mentioned as well that you know some of these creators haven't been talked about enough because their work exists in archives that aren't always available to the public and you know there's a complicated ethics involved in that in terms of some archives aren't meant for the general public and some are etc you can read all about it in margaret's book but yeah getting back to kind of relating some of those ideas and themes from your book to sort of the comic at hand let's talk about women in superhero comics a little bit. And as I mentioned, you know, you and I were on a conference panel years ago talking about female friendship in superhero comics. I know you've written about Jane Foster Thor and the importance of female community in a comic like that. So, I mean, what is important about representations of of female community in something like superhero comics with all the expectations of their sexism? You know, to you, Susan, what can be powerful about some of those portrayals? 
It's a great question. I just wanted to also sort of reiterate that I'm really excited. I had a preview of uh, Margaret's book, so I'm excited about it. And it's we really are good. actually also, we are birthday twins. We have the same <gasps> birthday. Not the, oh my not the God. same year, but I always sent her a message on, on our birthday, um, December 5th. <laughs> She's my birthday buddy, and I was able to read her book early, and I highly recommend it. So speaking of female friends, uh, yes, I think, I think, you know, there's... There's off, you know, when I was growing up, it was people be like, oh, so you read Wonder Woman because you are female and therefore you mm -hmm. must love Wonder Woman. I actually didn't read Wonder Woman until I was much older as an adult. And I decided that I had to read all of DC and I, I did eventually oh, read, you know, these really old Wonder Woman comics. But I think that sometimes there was this, you know, there'd be one female character in the Justice League or you know, there's like one female character and therefore all girls are supposed to read and like that character. And so mm -hmm. when you have multiple female characters, you know, I think about, you know, when I was reading the X-Men, we had Jean Grey, we had Storm, we had Rogue, we had these characters interacting. I thought that was, you know, a really important and powerful moment to have these characters who were friends and would interact and have that be an important part of their lives. And so that for me is really, I think it's, it's wonderful to see in the comics and and this comic another positive thing it passes the Bechdel test because we have these two characters they're talking about something other than relationships and I think that's really important to see that you know females exist and they have conversations not about relationships and so forth and so sort of moving beyond the we'll have one and then that was a real problem also with comic strips i remember lynn johnston who did the comic strip for better or for worse she said yeah. in some interviews that you know when she was you know starting out off the comic strip people would say oh well we have kathy we don't need another comic strip by oh. by a woman you know it's like we have 30 comic strips by men and one by a woman so yeah we're doing we're all right we're good you know and it's like Oh, we got one female. That's enough for this superhero team or this, you know, entire comics page or this, you know, it's still an issue, you know, today in terms of like representation and obviously uh, intersectional, you know, not, not just white cisgendered, you know, mm -hmm. elite upper middle class, you know, female characters that, you know, still working on that. But it's really, I think, a step in the right direction to see these females interacting and going and getting their hair done. For me, I, I enjoy it. I, I agree with you. I my favorite parts were the trip to the to get their hair done and then the conversation, which we'll get to the, the sword fighting conversation. I, I, I agree. I wish that had been the entire issue. So Susan, can yes. I ask if you would therefore be interested in a book about gender representation in X-Men comics that uses <laughs> intersectional analysis and extensive Bechdel testing? Of course. Okay, because I know one. It's coming out in oh. October. <laughs> well, I, do I just want to plug that. Absolutely, of course. <laughs> Excellent. With, Thank with you. an entire chapter on the ladies' I night sold issue, one I believe. Copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which 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 ladies' night? What is this? The 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 ladies' night single issue in Uncanny X Men. Oh, okay. They, okay. they go to the mall. They meet Jubilee. Yeah, they meet Jubilee. Right, yeah. right. Jubilee. I was I was thinking for a second of a, a Fantastic Four girls' night different issue okay got it okay i'm excited though so okay. what are you gonna do with your with your one copy royalty check 
I mean, I assume I would buy some gummies from the local store or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's going to pay me. Well, I was going to come back to you for it, Andrew. You know, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to talk about that being one of the unique aspects of the X-Men franchise. So if you want to weigh in on it, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think I agree. I, I like the idea of having scenes of like, like Rain and Moira reconnecting. That's something that I think Ellis never really took advantage of. And, and it seemed like that was, you know, a great reason to bring Rain into the book to specifically set that up. And I don't know, like the idea of them going to get makeovers can read a little bit kind of generic. Uh, but as Susan mentioned, the conversation is is not bad. You know what I mean? Like they're they're talking about things. They're talking about their desires and politics and likes and stuff like that. So there, there's some positive elements to the depiction here. It, it's not as good as what we've seen in earlier issues of Excalibur, but there's there's stuff here that we can kind of single out as, you know, interesting. What strikes me about it is just, I mean, you know, this is us, so of course we're going to go back to Claremont, but <laughs> what strikes me about it is that, you know, the amount of, of female characters introduced during the Claremont issue and the strength of those characters is almost unerasable. You know, even when you get to an era like this where the writing's not as strong, some of the characterizations are generic, you still can't erase those things because these characters are here, they exist, these are the yeah. substance of the franchise at this point, and and, I mean, that's why it's so important to have multiple female characters within your franchise, right? Because once you have that, there's no going back. You have to do a lot of work to erase that presence once that presence has been established. Well, I need to get you to weigh in on it a little bit too, Mav. Like, I mean, what did you make of kind of the substance of this interaction between these characters? Did it do anything for you or was the genericness just insurmountable? It's the best part of the book. As I said before, it's I want to be fair to Ben Rob. We talked about this a little bit last issue, so I don't want to rehash the entire conversation. But I don't know how much of this is his fault so much as, look, we are entering an era where we need to stay in business. So this is going to be an X-Men fight book. And that's what it's got to be. And this feels like someone trying to establish himself. This this conversation and the Piotr Kurt conversation yeah. feel like someone saying, look, I'm paying attention to the characters. Here's where I want them to be. Because what I think is interesting about Rain and Kitty is they're not really friends. They never were. Their relationship such that it is, is that Rain is the girl who didn't like Kitty's best friend all that much. Rain is the girl who dated the guy who had a crush on Kitty after Kitty was done with him. Like, they're, they're, they know each other, but they're not, like, they don't hang out in the New Mutants days, right? Like, Rain's a little younger, and she's, they, they're not friends. They're aware of each other. They're, you know, they go to the same school. And Kitty's way more popular than Rain is, right? Like it's it's that's the that's the relationship. It's like, yeah, I went to school with that girl. She would never allow me to sit at her table. And now they're half a world away and they're adults. And this feels like feels like the story here is that Kitty wants to reach out and wants to get to know this person. And it feels like there's something there. It feels like Rob is going for something, and it doesn't get there because it's not a very good comic book. 
but it's not <laughs> like <laughs> but like i don't want to i mean I, I don't want to crush the attempt i appreciate the yeah. swing here so much more than i appreciate the 47 pages of brian fighting the the crimson dawn in this page comic book and i like it's so telling like, that we haven't even talked about that at all and i have um, nothing to say about it other i have like, like i have nothing nice to say about it because I, I, I also want to compare like the conversation between rain and kitty with kurt and Piotr trying to reconnect like these are two people yeah. who were best friends have had kind of a falling out and this is like an attempt to repair their relationship and have like a little bit of playful it's it's stupid playfulness like colossus has been doing this as long as kurt he doesn't need kurt to teach him how to fight in such a <laughs> sort of demeaning kind of way you know like uh -huh. but i'm okay but like i'm i'm okay with the with the game of you know that's how danger room scenes used to be right like they're just like hey we're just gonna go out there and try to outdo each other and have fun and goof around and then have like a sort of subtext conversation about our relationship beneath this it's not as strong as it should be because there should still be some of the mistrust of peter should be trying to earn kurt's trust back kurt should be kind of a little hesitant still and that's kind of dissolved away because the book just doesn't care anymore but i feel like it's trying so those are like my positives i feel like the when it when this book tries to sit down and like actually talk about character they're not necessarily the characters that i recognize but as i say every time we switch writers i want to give the new writer of record some rope to hang himself on right like give him let him like he we should not be judging him by the writing of chris claremont chris claremont left this book 80 issues ago like it's been a long time right so like so like that's not fair whereas i do feel like my problems with this have to do with the fact that there's a massive fight scene between brian braddock who doesn't want to be a superhero anymore but for some reason is wearing his outfit under his clothes and characters that i don't recognize and you know they're both they're strong enough to knock out brian and megan which means everybody on this street is dead now yeah <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally a lot of property damage yeah and and like i don't care about any of it i'm not joking it's been 26 years i don't remember any of their names I, I don't remember what their powers are. I don't care. And we've got like three more issues of this. <laughs> I know. I know. More, I think. I don't know. Maybe just to reinforce Mav's point. I have that flagged as well with the Kurt Peter relationship. I think it's the same thing as the, the Rain Kitty relationship. These are characters with extensive histories together, mm -hmm. but actually very little definition. Do you know what I mean? Their right. dynamic is not something Claremont ever explored. Uh, right. in, in they any know each other. Their detail. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that these are both really interesting. Um, as you said, swings by Rob. Like there, there's a lot you could do there. But as you also said, it just it's not really coming together yet. And he doesn't get he doesn't get time because it feels like I mean we spent a lot of time on this rain kitty conversation but it's two pages and half of one of the pages is taken up by by shamrock you don't i mean <laughs> there's also like some a little bit of conversation on the page before where you gotta you know but like a lot of that's to service doug lock and then the page before that you got to sub, sub service pete wisdom so there's attempts at character building in here but it's so rushed how you know how many the reason there's so many words on that page is i'm trying to build all of the personality of two characters and their relationship in one page worth of dialogue well i 
I was going to talk a little bit about the female villains in the comic, but since we're already talking about the Kurt and Piotr scene and Susan said that she had thoughts, maybe we'll go to that and we can go back to villains in our final thoughts if we want. I know we're going to talk about it a little bit more next week as well. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about about this sword fight. I mean, I said I wanted to talk about it, unsurprisingly, that it hits on some things I'm interested (laughs) in in terms of like homoerotic subtext in this space, but I'd love to hear you weigh in on it susan like i mean the fact that there's like an inherent queer subtext to x-men comics and superhero comics in general is not a new idea we talk about that at length on this podcast on a regular basis but this scene is particularly intense on that front for a variety of reasons both with the phallic symbolism the outfits the poses and uh yeah as someone who studies gender and representation in this space i'd love to hear you talk about it a little bit like when you see a scene like this does any of that sort of homoeroticism feel intentional to you or is that just the nature of this space? You know, it's a great, it's a great question. And I, I, I have no idea whether, you know, it's intentional or not. Part of me doesn't want to know. I just want to yeah, enjoy yeah. it. You know, um, it reminds me a little bit, uh, you know, obviously I'm sure you've talked about Ramsey Fawaz and the way mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Ramsey reads. And, and I, it even reminds me a little bit of, you know, Bell Hooks talking about the oppositional gaze, although that I mean, this is a very white comic, though. But I like the idea of reading and and enjoying and seeing what you see. And I definitely, you know, I just I enjoyed it. I I have to say, it set up an opening scene, which was so much fun. You know, these fabulous men are rolling around half naked and loving it. And you know, <laughs> little details. He's like Nightcrawler has his little my, Marvel shorty tight shorts. Mm-hmm. They say Marvel on the side, and he's like, you know, you know, they're just kind of rolling around and having fun. There is also a sort of a a whiff, a little hint of nostalgia, you know, because he's reflecting back on this days with, with Xavier and there's like, you know, there's some emotion happening, but I just reading it, I, I was smiling at the opening and I was like, Ooh, this is going to be a good one. And I, and then I was like, Oh no, no, it's not. As you say, I definitely went to sleep during the fight scenes and just, you know, it's like, you're just kind of flipping through to get to the next good part. And then we don't come back to them fighting. So I was sad because they look so cool. And and there's like, you know, interesting things. I I love, you know, they're having fun, they're frolicking and, you know, calling him a Siberian lummox. And yeah, I, is it intentional? I don't know, but it is delightful. Um, I can say that. Yeah, yeah. I just, I always don't know with this kind of thing. I mean, it's just, (laughs) I mean, we've talked many times, obviously, on the podcast about, you know, the symbolism of Nightcrawler's body and what we can kind of do with that and the intentionality there and how, you know, he's got like a three and a half foot long prehensile tail that's always going to bring phallic symbolism with it, which, you know, Dave Cockrum recognized in his original character sheet where he's like don't draw it coming out straight between his legs because you'll give the censor spits <laughs> of course many people have broken that rule over the years but yeah i don't just some of the poses here i mean like we open with like we're looking with kurt's tail wrapped around the sword and of course yep. i can't believe that this is something i have said on this podcast i'm sure at least once before probably more than once you know the nature of kurt's tail as a symbol that like is interesting because it both thrusts and squeezes it's both hard and soft and that's very 
very interesting in terms of the complicated gender representation of this character. But, you know, combined with the double swords aimed at Colossus, and that's a very sort of violent image, but then combined with Kurt's smile, which gives it, lends it a sort of a different context of fun. And then, of course, the pose on the second page where Kurt's got his foot on Piotr's chest and Kurt's feet, which are very sort of hand-like or emphasized by that pose. <laughs> and like, of course, the sword aimed down at him before Piotr uh, kicks him back to the ground and is then sort of leaning over his body. I mean, if you're interested in reading the homoerotic context of X-Men comics, this is definitely a scene that's going to give you something to work with, with the outfits too, right? Like the bike shorts, the tight pants, like the tank tops. I believe I called this a tits out look in the in the last <laughs> issue that we were that we were talking about. We got some nice views of the chests of these characters, certainly. And uh, I wanted to point out too that Colossus is wearing a pair of pants. Like Kurt is wearing the Marvel branded pants, but I believe Piotr's pants are like a reference to the Tekken video game, although it's yes. not spelled correctly. It's it's Tekken Two, which is out. At this time, I'm a huge fan of the franchise, so it is a reference to the Tekken 2 video game. However, they apparently did not want to brand right. with the official spelling, so they changed it from T-E-K-K-E-N to T-E-C-K-E-N. Um, but Tekken 2, the video game, would have been around at this point. Yes, a, I did. I did. I, I did look up the date of that. Yeah, it would have yeah. been a year before that it was uh, released on consoles. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know. Let's move to some final thoughts because there's lots of stuff that we didn't talk about. And I'm sure there'll be something from from each of us that we want to go back to, whether it's going to be the villains, whether it's going to be the art, whether it's going to be us finally talking about anything having to do with Brian and the Crimson Dawn. So I'll uh, let us each get a chance to, to weigh in on something. And I'll start with you this week, Mav. Anything that you want to bring up or circle back to that we haven't got a chance to discuss in as much depth as you would like? Sure. And it's not Crimson Dawn and Brian. Um, um, there's, there's two things. One is just briefly, this book mercifully allows Amanda to leave. <laughs> And just, and just be done, which is but not is in it a good Amanda way. or is it no it's not else. i mean like <laughs> chronology wise it's not but whatever I, I guess we can say we're not gonna find out she's done she appears one more time in the book i think like in the last issue but like we're i i don't think we're getting a resolution to this in in the series because i think it happens in x and x-men unlimited so black sun right or some i don't know well but it happens like, in unlimited <laughs> and then leading into black sun i oh, okay yeah i had the great job well adam was visiting this weekend and he's like yeah the next photo we're doing like an amanda sefton episode and i'm just like geez amanda's everywhere these days what the heck but someone requested it and he was like well what amanda comics should we read and i was like adam of course i have all of these comics starring mm -hmm. amanda Sefton, which are not on Marvel Unlimited, on a memory mm -hmm. stick that I can give to you. So I did give him Black Sun and X Men Unlimited. So I think they're okay. going to be talking about both nice. of those on Boda. So go over to Boda in a couple of weeks to to hear combo about those yeah. things. But yes, not going to be resolved in the pages of Excalibur. Yeah. So it's over. So alas, poor Amanda, we hardly knew you because you know <laughs> mm -hmm. she because she's she she deserved better. But the other thing is Shamrock's in this issue and. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Much like last issue where, where there was the, the woman who was sitting at the counter and, you, and I was like, enough time is devoted to her that you'd think that she was important and that this was going somewhere. Same thing with Shamrock. You know, it's like, a, hey, kids, do you know who this is? 
I mean, she's a pretty deep cut, so you, you very well might not know who she is, but I did. And then you'd think that she'd be back to do something next issue. No. No. Issue after that? <laughs> no. No, she's a, this is a one-off. She's just there for one panel. I will say that this is an important issue because I went back and checked. I went, I went on a deep dive of Shamrock this week because it was a lot more interesting than reading this book. And I read her previous appearances to this. I'd read Contest of Champions before. I knew where that was. But, like, this is her... She has retired from superheroing here and decided to become a hairdresser, which she canonically still is in comics today. This mm-hmm. is the first time that it was mentioned that she was a hairdresser. It's brand new because before that, she was a school teacher. I know because her origin story is only two appearances before this. She appeared in a Marvel Comics Presents right before, like, well, actually not right before this in, in real time. It's a couple of years before because, you know, she's not an important enough character that they're going to, like you know show her all that often but she's um but she appears in a marvel comic presents which is a actually a really you know for what she is it's a pretty in-depth origin story i think it's number 24 yeah third story in marvel comics presents number 24 it's pretty in-depth it's only about eight pages she's never in costume but you see her fight arnim zola arnim zola is a is a villain that she fights in that comic uh nazi character arnim zola and who has taken over her father and if you don't know arnim Zola, he's a robot man with a big face in his chest, like like Modoc, but in reverse. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that's an interesting story. And the very next time she appears, she's in um, Alpha Flight number one hundred eight, where she has some tea. That's it. There's <laughs> Alpha Flight fights Hitler. Uh, or rather Hitler's brain, but because of her oh luck God. powers, she was not involved and she was not like taken over by Hitler's brain like everybody else was. So instead, she just kind of has tea with North Star. It's kind of something. It was supposed to be cute. It goes nowhere. But that issue is meaningful because not only does it star Shamrock, it also stars Micromax. Oh my <laughs> Micromax, God, really? Excalibur fame, yes, is in that issue interacting when there's a UN and there's a UN controlled superhero team that has a representative from each nation and Shamrock is there and you know from from Ireland and then and then Micromax is there from from Great Britain and it's kind of like oh that's a thing that happened and then it actually happens between like issue 45 and 46 of Excalibur I I went and I went and followed the Marvel chronology project and figured out where that issue was and then she doesn't matter again for like years <laughs> so like so like if you're really kind of into it you're like hey we're gonna get shamrock back into this thing you know and we will find out like what is she down on her luck how come she doesn't have her powers how'd she break her legs nope never find out that's that's not not a story you're gonna learn (laughs) nope so sorry it's very Um, odd i know yeah it's just a thing that's there i believe she says she slipped in the woo how she that's yep, all we're gonna does. get yeah yeah next Let's time you see her is in girl up. comics um girl comics number two which is years later yeah from 2010 uh well yeah i did want to underscore that though because i mean it is interesting if we're gonna do this like alternative history of like connections between women characters and superhero comics because yeah she shows up in girl comics which of course is part of the women of marvel event it was a anthology all written and drawn and edited by women and shows up in the context of like sort of female community there drawn by i think colleen coover which is interesting and then fearless defenders as well she shows up like again in the context of sort of a book starring women and friendship and so it's interesting to see her here and then 
in a weird way, that's going to be a big influence onto <laughs> much more interesting representations of like sort of communities of women in superhero comics moving forward. I mean, not perfect, but interesting at the very least. So, you know, <laughs> alternative, alternative feminist history of Marvel comics through, through Molly Fitzgerald Shamrock, my next conference Shamrock. paper, no doubt. <laughs> uh, probably not going to do that, but still, uh, it sort of interested me. Oh, um, I Andrew. You. I dare you. <laughs> Please yeah. do. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Andrew, anything you wanted to bring up or circle back to? Yeah, I wanted to to read that fight with uh, between Peter and Kurt in the context of where that dynamic is established in X-Men comics as fights mm. between Wolverine and Kurt mm. uh, and how that represents a progression of that. In, in my eyes, I would argue that that's something Rob's playing with directly, um, where normally it's Kurt on the ground getting his ass kicked and then getting a lesson from Wolverine. Here you have Kurt being placed into the Wolverine role and it's specifically over Colossus, which to me is especially interesting if we want to get really really continuity heavy uh and read it in the context of the the famous juggernaut story with colossus where wolverine apprentices kurt in teaching colossus a lesson mm -hmm. um so as i said if you want to read this as part of a broader continuity next comics there's a lot happening there and i do think it's interesting to have kurt transition from the role of the student to the teacher in this context yeah yeah that's a that's a wonderful deep reading of that scene. I like that about it as well. The thing I was going to just spotlight briefly, and I don't have a lot of thoughts about it other than to say that I have complicated thoughts about it. But well, for one thing, Rob continues to write Pete Wisdom as the most unlikable person in the entire world, which not that he was likable before, but boy, he is really up the ante on that. But which contributes to me having mixed feelings about Kitty, like breaking okay, his computer yeah, to like basically sexual assault him um, because mm -hmm. he doesn't seem like a willing participant and then slaps his ass <laughs> at the end of the scene and like I mean the part of me that hates Pete Wisdom isn't upset about this but the part of me that's like wanting to see sex positive portrayals particularly spotlighting female agency and desire in this space um very mixed feelings about this because that is not any of that <laughs> please don't behave this way um it's pretty terrible i didn't like kitty in this scene uh, i love that she's horny for pete despite the fact that i don't know why she's horny for pete but uh but yeah pretty pretty dickish in this scene uh to pete wisdom to I... be honest I absolutely believe that Kitty Pride, as the character that she was at this point in time, has moments where where she gets horny and she just like calls upon Pete Wisdom to scratch that itch, and she's got permission to like like I don't think I even need you know I, I don't need informed consent on the page here yeah, because there are relationships couple, going I on can, yeah, I that, I, that I that like I just and just the way they've always treated each other this is their vibe I assume they're both mm -hmm. okay with it there is nothing about the character of kitty pride that i have read over the last five decades that lets me believe that she did not care enough to go around the computer yeah. <laughs> kitty yeah. pride did yeah. not Listen. fry a computer on kitty pride does not fry a speaking spell on per on, on purpose <laughs> she just <laughs> she did not fry his computer on purpose it's it's just not the geek she is yeah like i mean i have a hard time yeah. believing that she loves pete wisdom but i 100 percent believe that she loves computers and would never she would never <laughs> would never it is a very strange scene. Have someone who hasn't been mm -hmm. following, and I, um, so my sort of nostalgic memories of Kitty Pride, like, oh, sweet Kitty Pride, and then I came on this scene, and and 
Kitty, like, she, you know, does this creepy thing where she pulls, you know, she comes out of the computer at Pete and, like, and jumps on him. <laughs> and then, like, she drops him on the ground. It's it's very unsettling for me. Like, I was like, oh, it's Kit. Oh, what is Kitty doing? Oh, <laughs> Kitty, stop. Kitty, like, no, don't do that. And, um, yeah, for someone who has not been following this series, it was very jarring. And again, I was conflicted because I thought, oh, it's wonderful that she's taking charge, but not this way, yeah. you know, yeah. like, no, 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 not, not cool. So it was, it was, and then abruptly she just leaves him. Bye. I yeah. know. Bye. Bye. I know. And, you know, and that's what I was saying. Like there's some really abrupt shifts in this comic. It's like, she jumps out of the computer attacks him slaps him on the butt and then she's gone like moving on to another idea and i'm like whoa <laughs> this is and then and then of course you know in these interpersonal relationship sort of moments we have these the fight scene that none of us care about just like as interruptions it's mm-hmm. it was very there were some awkward shifts but i'm glad you brought up the kitty jumping through the computer attacking him and then scampering away it was it was unsettling for me i mean his hands are like tense and not grabbing her and there's like I agree with Mav that, you know, in the context of the relationship, this doesn't seem totally out of place. And yet the visualization of this certainly makes the consent a bit icky. It's not Mm -hmm. very sexy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But but I did have questions, too, about this is unsurprisingly something I've thought of before. But like, I wonder if you can feel anything when you're both phased. Like if you make out (laughs) and you're both phased, like, is that good or bad? And I don't really want to get into it, but I have questions. No, no, I'm, I'm certain this is a super sex issue i'm certain you can uh, if she wants you to because there are too many instances of her both directly you know like kiss making out with with piotr rasputin you know well phased mm. but also implications that uh, uh sexualized implications with Ilyana that like clearly there is an intimacy that occurs when she phases mm-hmm. through somebody and we we did the entire episode where we talked about the entire team having group sex and the phased into yeah, each other bodies like, like there's but like the but one like where she steps out, inside Rachel too yeah. right 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 but even outside of those like those where there are where it's an insinuation and I will I will grant I will grant a little bit of ambivalence there where people are like oh well maybe you're reading too much into it we're not you know this is our whole show um but but um but like there are enough instances where she has kiss made out with other people over the over the course of her history i think she's done it with pretty much all of her boyfriends like i think she's done it with star lord i think she's done it with she's certainly done it with colossus at points like so she appears to be able to if she wants to i mean it makes it makes no weird it's a weird thing that doesn't really make sense because certainly people punch through her all the time but like i guess she can have tender moments while phased if she wants to well not just tender moments but i mean we talked about agency and consent in this scene and because she is the penetrating party given her phasing power that adds additional mm-hmm. context to the play of power in this scene which again i'm giving the scene way more credit than it deserves i did not mean <laughs> no, to go off so much on the scene <laughs> <laughs> yeah um anyway i'm gonna come back to you susan for the for the final word on this issue anything that you would like to circle back to or bring up in closing that we perhaps haven't given its due it's not an important point but one thing that i did enjoy again focusing on the positive i it reminded me of 
something I haven't thought about in a while, um, the way the editorial comments kind of created a conversation with the reader, uh, mm. with the Shamrock in particular. I mean, there's the references to other comics, but I know Dale Jacobs talks about this, about how Marvel built a community of readers. And that was mm. one of the things when I was reading X titles that I really liked was being a part of that community, like in the know, like, oh, well, that was in the other comic in the other world. And I remember that, or I'm going to find that. And and I enjoyed that aspect. And and even the the shamrock, you know, as you say, it was a deep cut. And there's this reference from editorial. Can you guess who our mystery hero is? See letters page for details, Matt. And that was something that um, as I was reading it, it, it reminded me of that sort of Marvel community that they worked hard to, to maintain and get you to read all the other comics. And I, I enjoyed that. And then, the, I mean, and it, this is not an important point, but I, I, I found, um, as we talked about, unfortunately, the, the villain scenes, the battle scenes, you know, disappointing, except the, the fashion. That was that was the only thing that stuck mm. with me. We're t- you're saying you don't remember the characters, the villains' names. The only thing that stood out to me was, wow, she has a fabulous pair of white furry boots. Yes. Which, <laughs> um, I feel like that was where they should have, you know, focused. She, what's energy. her name? What's her name? Spiral? Is it Spiral? Is oh, that Spiral? Well, oh, that's your, oh that's spiral. Your, I thought you were talking about the Crimson Dog. No, Spiral counts. Spiral's a, co- a cool character. I thought okay, you were Spiral I thought has the... some great boots yeah. that I, I think. Yes. Um, they're like white furry boots, and I really enjoyed yeah. those. That was my favorite part of the fight scene, really. Yeah. Yes. The, the I thought Absolutely. you meant the new woman. I thought you meant the Crimson and Dawn lady. Whose nope, I sorry. Know. I don't know her name. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't have white boots. So I was yeah, like, whatever. We will yeah. definitely talk more about Spiral uh, next issue okay. because again, you know, uncovering histories of uh, female characters and creators. Spiral, of course, is sort of Ricochet Rita, who is sort of Anna Senti. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about it in the, in the next episode, I promise. Spiral, a very fascinating character who is, like Susan, too good for this comic. <laughs> Um, I want to just spotlight a letter briefly in closing and then we'll wrap things up Um, and it has to do unsurprisingly given my focus of late with Amanda Sefton so this letter is from Di Breen I'm just going to read part of it what about this whole Amanda Sefton thing she kills Grave Moss and has no remorse. She holds back on telling anyone that her mother, a very powerful sorceress, has taken the Soul Sword. She sees in the time stream that Rory Campbell could become Ahab, yet risks the safety of her friends by not mentioning it. She could help Campbell avoid his possible future if she wanted to, but obviously she isn't interested. With all the half-truths and all the holding back of information, who can trust her? Her character is written so that she appears dishonest and foolish rather than strong and intelligent. There is an easy way to avoid this problem. Get some female writers. I now understand that Amanda will be given more of a role in Excalibur. I truly hope you guys don't have Nightcrawler and Amanda getting married. This would take away Nightcrawler's swashbuckling, suave ladies' man character, a vital part of his personality, and one that has been underplayed for far too long. Haven't you guys made him somber enough? Whatever happened to the daring, stunt-loving, two-people-are-in-the-audience guy that Kurt had been all his life? Leopards can't change their spots, no matter how hard they try. Okay, I feel better now. Thanks, guys. I liked both the standing up for the Amanda Sefton-ness of that letter and the plea for a more diverse writer's room, but also she doesn't want them to settle down and get married. She wants Nightcrawler to continue being the ladies' man, but also wants Amanda to be better written. And uh, someone after my own heart, die. I appreciate your comments so much. Staying. There's a meeting of the round table. No, I can't. 
we will wrap things up there other than to say, Susan, thank you so very dearly for joining us. Um, before we go, and you need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you if you want to be found and um, yeah, your past and present projects that we should be encouraging our readers to check out. So yeah, please, please hype all your stuff, Susan. Well, I'm not very good at hype. I'm more of a hermit. So <laughs> I am not on social media. I am very much a hermit. But Portland State Comics is, um, you can see what's happening at Portland State on Instagram and whatever Twitter is now. But I love talking <laughs> about comics. And so I'm. you can always email me at skirtley at pdx.edu. I'm happy to talk comic comics answer questions you can you can get my books on linda berry and comics pedagogy and on you know um, typical girls those are available through the library so you can get those if you're interested and i'm happy to answer questions working on stuff with the comic study society working on a project a couple of different projects that'll be coming out in the next um i don't know <laughs> you know how academics are months yeah, years but um i'm around and and I love talking comics. So thanks for having me in. And I encourage folks to reach out. Uh, thanks so much, Susan. Yeah, we'll put links to, to where folks can buy some of those wonderful books in our show notes for the episode. And in the interest of wrapping our work, this will be in the past by the time this episode drops. But Andrew reminds us that over at Sequential Scholars, where at the time of this recording, we're still <laughs> talking about Mojo Mayhem. We are doing a thread about Ricochet, Rita and Spiral and the relationship between those two characters. So I'll certainly add that to the show notes as well. And again, by the time you listen to this, it'll be in the past. But if you didn't check that out, definitely check that out. All right. So next, the throwdown with Spiral and her Crimson Cadre continues in Excalibur number 109, Dragon Moon Rising, and we'll have another all-star guest to help us make the most of the mess. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes. You can find those via our website or the Box Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, I think I've got maybe one spot left, so not super open, but still... You can still reach out via our website, goshgollywa.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Mav and Andrew, for another Crimson Convo. Thank you, Susan, for painting the town red with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Play us out.